All right, good morning, guys. Uh, my name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and um, we are going to be continuing our study in the book of Romans today. So you might as well grab your Bibles and start flipping over to Romans 8. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. Uh, in our Bibles, we're going over to page 944, page 944, Romans 8. We are in a chapter of the Father's blessing, right? We, we, we spent verses 1 through 18, unpacking this incredible declaration of the Father's blessing, right? It begins with this proclamation that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And and of course, that's true for us because it wasn't true for him, right? Jesus um, took our condemnation. Our sin was condemned, but it was condemned in him. He took our place on the cross so that we could join him in the blessing of resurrection. And uh, And as a result of believing in him, uh, we receive not only forgiveness, uh, but we've been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us as believers, and we are adopted into the family of God. And the Spirit is at work within us to lead us into a greater and greater awareness of that intimacy we now have with God. The Spirit leads us to call out, Abba, Father, to, to, to have that familiar call of, of, of a child for his dad. He frees us progressively from our disoriented desires. He, he frees us into um, the freedom that we have in Christ. And since we are heirs, uh, uh, since we are adopted, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom of God, right? That, that's, the, that's what we've been studying, this incredible declaration of blessing. This is our position before God. This is our standing, right? We we stand in grace, we are secure in the spirit, and we are blessed of the Father. But we live now between the ages. We live now um, in in the age of darkness that is passing away. We also live in the age of light that is emerging and being born. The age of rebellion is still here, but it's dying, and the age of resurrection is here, but it is in the process of breaking in. We live in the tension between. And that's what we're looking at. What do we do with it, right? What do we do with this waiting? What does it mean to be a son of God, a child of God, adopted into the family of God, living in the full blessing that we've received in Christ now? When every day we're dealing with the pain of brokenness. And of course, as we saw last week, the way that we engage this season is with um, groaning, right? Groaning is the way we keep our hope alive. Um, and, and as we move into this passage, what we're seeing is that we're going to be moving into the threefold groaning of um, the creation of humanity and of God, right? Because that's what we're looking at is these creation groans, which is where we're going today. Humanity groans, that's where we're going next week. And God himself groans with us, that's where we're going in the week after that, right? This, this chorus of groaning, this song of waiting. And today, we're going to specifically be talking about the groaning of creation. Let's take a look at our verses. We're going to be looking at verses 8, chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Um, starting in verse 18. For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared or worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so one of the sub-themes that's been running through the book of Romans, and, and Paul introduced it right there in Romans 1, is the background of Genesis 1 through 3. Um, our creation and the original rebellion, right? In Genesis 1, he, he talks about um, those who, who exchanged the glory of an immortal God for the image of um, man and birds and animals and creeping things, the fourfold classifications of the creation. And of course, he's speaking of our first parents, our first parents who rebelled against God in the garden, but he's also speaking of us because they're not alone in their rebellion. Um, our first parents rebelled and every one of their children followed in like manner. We have all rebelled, but it began there. And, and, and when they did it, um, they broke shalom with God. Right, they broke um, the. They disrupted God's good creation in Genesis three. Genesis one and two, man. Um, sometimes I'm, I'm. I just wish there was more there. There's so much there. I wish there was more written about it. Let's go there. I wish we had a like a richer, fuller description of life in Genesis one and two. Um, Genesis one and two. It's a beautiful age. In fact, we can call it at this point the golden age of humanity. Um, when everything was as it was supposed to be. Everything was as it was created to be. Everything had its proper place, its proper function, and everything functioned at peace, um, in unity, with purpose, with everything else in creation. Uh, there's a quote I want to read you from uh, theologian Cornelius Platinga. Um, it's a just a, I think, a, a very powerful way of putting it. He describes this age in this way, and and he says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. I just love that last sentence. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Every single one of us has an ache for shalom. Every single one of us has an ache that the world would be the way it is meant to be. And every single day we walk in the disappointment of the loss of shalom. Every single day we pursue it and every day, single day we fall short of it. Every goal we set, every achievement, every hope, every vacation, every promotion, it's a pursuit of the shalom of God and it always falls short of actually delivering us into it and we are left with the ache of its absence. Uh, can you imagine an orchestra? Um, 
hundred instruments or so in an orchestra, and uh, and every single person in that room tunes their instrument by ear or by their neighbor. Can you imagine what would happen when that orchestra started playing together? Uh, it would be cacophony. It would be a horrible, mismatched sound. Um, as each person simply played an instrument that had been tuned to their own ear of what the guiding note should be, right? That's life today. That's our culture. That's our world. That's, that's, that's evangelicalism. That, that is, it is, it is the world in its brokenness, a cacophony of noise, everyone yelling, everyone angry. And you know why? Because we're angry their instruments are out of tune. Ours are too. But we're just mad that theirs don't match ours, right? There's a lack of harmony and we're convinced it's their, it's their problem. It's their fault, right? In the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, all of creation played a glorious tune. Every instrument was tuned to a single glorious note. God's goodness. God's presence. And as a result, everything in creation, without effort, without fighting or struggle, was part of the glorious harmony of shalom, the fullness and the flourishing of life. Our first parents lost that when they rebelled against God, and we've craved it ever since. And Jesus came back, came to win back what humanity lost. God became human to succeed where humans failed. God became the last Adam to succeed where the first Adam failed. He walked in obedience. He walked in, in, in full submission to God. He fulfilled the will of God. He never rebelled against God. He, he, he walked in humble submission, continually, continually carrying out the will of God. He lived for the glory of God, and he ended up succeeding where every human has failed. Lived the life we should have lived, and then died the death we deserve to die. And rose again. So that he could create a new humanity. Not only created in the image of God, but recreated in the image of Christ. And, 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 and here's his goal, y'all. His goal is not to take us back to Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 is gone. And it will never return. That age of innocence can never be again. But here's what's beautiful about the work of Christ. He's going to take us to something better. Because that's what God does. When God fixes something that's broken, it's better than before it was broken. The touch of the master in recreating adds a glory to the creation and makes it glorious. His goal is to take us forward into something even better. The redeemed and recreated age of the new humanity, ruled by the Son of God, led, led by God incarnate, right? Now there's something I noticed in this chapter that I want to share with you just before we, we jump in. Um, I'm going to grab my handy-dandy whiteboard. So in Genesis, um, I didn't read this anywhere. This is just something I noticed. So if I'm totally off, y'all can just tell me. But uh, in Genesis, when we look at the loss of Shalom, or the impact of, of the first sin. When you read through Genesis 3, you see that there is a progressive impact. Am I on the screen? Can people online see me? Okay, I, I will stand over here. 
There we go. Sorry. There's a progressive impact when you read through Genesis 3. First of all, you see the impact of the loss of shalom in man's relationship with God, right? Adam and Eve cover themselves with fig leaves and jump in the bushes. Why? Because they've lost peace with God. They, they, they now see God as a threat instead of an invitation. He doesn't show up in anger. He shows up in love, but all they feel is anger. He shows up inviting and all they hear is a threat. They've lost peace with God. They've lost shalom with God. Not because God has changed, but because they have changed. Right? So they lose shalom with God. Then we see the loss of shalom play out in humanity. So immediately after that, you see the very first marital fight. That's fun to watch. Uh, as Adam and Eve are like out competing each other to see who can throw the other one under the bus fast enough. You know what I'm saying? Like God's like, hey, what all happened here, y'all? What's going on? They're like, she did it. She did it, and the serpent did it, and, right? The, you have this marital fight, and then, and then God explains that there's a fundamental shift that's taken place in human relationships. When, he, when he's speaking about the result of the rebellion to Eve, he says to her, your desire is going to be for your husband, and he's going to rule over you. In other words, the fundamental relationship that they had, which was meant to be one of mutual respect and love, in which there were um, power was always exercised for the good of the other, would now become a competition in which power is used against the other. Now there's a fundamental loss of shalom between man and man. There is a a conflict instead of a community. There is a competition instead of a a shared common purpose, right? And then... um, We see the loss of shalom in creation. As you move toward the end of the chapter, uh, God explaining the, the... Consequences of the great rebellion to Adam explains to him that creation itself will now rise up against you. It will no longer yield to the steward's hand. It will rise against the steward with thorns and thistles, right? Instead of being fruitful and, and, um, uh, producing, yielding, uh, its fruitfulness to God, um, it will now rise up with thorns and thistles against you. It'll still be fruitful, but it's going to be a battle. It'll still do what it was meant to do, but it's going to be broken. It's going to hurt you in the process. Something I've noticed about Romans 8, when we look at the three layers of groaning that make up the chorus, is that it moves in the exact opposite direction. We begin with the groaning of creation, and then we move to the groaning of humanity, and then finally we come to the groaning of God. And what I love about this is that it seems to be a hint at God restoring what's been lost. At God stepping into the ruin of Genesis 3 and progressively restoring hope and bringing us now to the progressive mourning that leads us back to shalom. Because that's what groaning does. Groaning isn't simply uh, an empty activity. Groaning is the noble activity of the children of God that reconnects us with the shalom of God. Groaning is the appropriate response to the brokenness of this world and the brokenness in our relationships and the brokenness in our hearts and the brokenness in our connection with God. And it's by entering into that groaning that we are reconnected to the shalom of God. 
It's like Paul is leading us back through the carnage. And he's saying this is where the devastation took place. Let's walk back through it. Let's open our eyes and see it. The destruction that was caused by our sin. And as we do it, let's pause and let's groan over the loss and the suffering. Let's lament over the destruction. And as we do, um, the pain that we experience actually serves us and awakens us to an even greater and more profound longing for the living hope of the kingdom to come. So let's take a look at our passage now with this kind of in our minds. Let's take a look at at our, our verses, right? Verses 18 and 19. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the overall arcing um, thesis of these three groanings, right? That the sufferings of this present time, as bad as they are, as painful as they are, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us in the age that is to come. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, the creation. Um, Theologians debate, Commentators debate on, on what exactly Paul means by the creation, right? Um, most of them agree that he is speaking primarily of what we would call the subhuman world. Uh, since the second area of groaning is human groaning, human brokenness, uh, most commentators say that this is a personification of the subhuman world, that the rocks, the stars, the animal kingdom come together in a groaning um, over the brokenness that has been, uh, in a sense, forced on them because of the rebellion of humanity. And I think that's correct. I think that is true. I think Paul is personifying um, uh, the, the inanimate world, um, right? That's not uncommon. Jesus did that, right? If, 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 if you didn't sing out my praise, the rocks themselves would sing out the praise, right? There's a sense in which all of creation, even inanimate creation, was created for the purpose of glorifying God, and in a sense, aches for that purpose. But I think it needs to be expanded a little bit from just a consideration of being a personification of inanimate objects. Because creation, creation was designed to operate in a very specific way. And I think anywhere we see creation broken from that purpose, broken from from being able to do what it was created to do, we see creation groaning, right? Because creation isn't just objects. It's systems. Systems in which those objects operate. Systems that were designed to function for God's glory and for our good, right? And, And we can't list them all, but there are, you know, systems of hydrology, where water is supposed to evaporate and create fertile soil. There are systems of seismology where, where the earth is supposed to move and, and magma is supposed to be um, part of, of God's good creation instead of um, earthquakes and violently breaking out in volcanoes. There are systems of reproduction where all living things reproduce so that we can have children and species don't go extinct. See, anywhere those systems break down, 
the systems of creation, the systems that are designed to govern life and bring it into its fullness and flourishing, where those systems break down, I think we see the thorns and the thistles of Genesis 3. We see creation itself broken, not because it broke itself, but because we broke shalom with God. And as a result, Paul tells us, creation waits with eager longing, right? There's a Greek word here, that eager longing is a single Greek word that means to strain the neck, to yearn, to welcome. Have you ever missed somebody super, super bad and you knew they were coming? And everything in you is like tuned to their arrival. Like you're looking at the calendar days in advance. You wake up early. You can't help yourself. You're, 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 you, everything in you is aligned with this yearning waiting. That's the idea here. All of creation is, is straining the neck, yearning to welcome. And, and what is it waiting for? He says that all of creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. <laughs> Y'all, that's us. That's the family of God, the redeemed of God, the people of God, the people who have believed in Christ, who have been created in the image of God and are being recreated in the image of Jesus, right? The new humanity. And it's not just us, of course, it's Jesus at the head of the pack. (laughs) Because when we're talking about the new humanity, we're not talking about us without Jesus. We're talking about us recreated in the image of Jesus. Jesus was the firstborn of the new humanity and we are being recreated, right? We also are going to be reborn into this humanity that he uh, began, created in the image of God, recreated in the image of Christ. Listen, creation can't be what it was meant to be without humanity. That's the idea here. It just can't. Like, I don't know if you've seen some of those comics that are floating around that that kind of sarcastically and very darkly um, talk about how basically the world, all of creation, would fundamentally be better if humans had never existed. Like, Like, everything is good until humans show up. And then humans show up and they ruin everything. They're not wrong. (laughs) They're not wrong. Humans broke it. And humans continue to break it. Okay? They're not wrong. What they miss is that without humanity, creation can't be what it was created to be. Humanity is designed to be the key in the ignition. This thing doesn't run without us. We're the peace that, that causes it to function well. We were created to be the stewards of creation. We were created to be the caretakers of what God created. We were created to be the, the cultivators, the surveyors, the, those that, that, that protected what was and developed and created what could be. Creation couldn't be what it was created to be without humanity. We were designed to be the image of God to creation because we were created in the image of God. That's our function. That's our purpose. And the world longs. Creation aches for the revealing of the sons of God, for our coronation, for us to be what we are recreated to be. 
what we've already won but not yet experienced, what, what, is our, what is promised to us, right? And verses 20 and 21 tell us why. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, right? Creation was subjected to futility. The word futility simply means something that is vain, empty, or unable to do what it was created to do. Right? Um, If I were injured in such a way that I retained my arm but was unable to use it, that would be a good illustration. I still have it, but it would not be able to function as it was created to function. And it would be a source of pain to me. It would be a source of frustration for me, right? Um, and of course, that illustration in and of itself is dangerous because while I have full use of my arms, there are others who don't. And they understand the pain that Paul is describing here. The world is frustrated with its futility. It is not able to be what it was created to be. The world was created to be part of the glorious chorus, singing the glory of God, functioning for the glory of God, bringing in the shalom of God into the experience of man, and creation can't be what it was created to be. It can't do what it was created to do. Why? Because of our rebellion. Because of our sin against God. Paul tells us that this was not done willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. It wasn't that creation rebelled against God. It wasn't that that creation willingly submitted itself to this futility. It was something that God did to creation. Um, it was something that that it was 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 done right. Now, listen, this is when when we rebelled against God. When I say by we, I mean our first parents, because when our first parents did it, we did it with them. When we rebelled against God, God had infinite choices about how to respond. You know what I'm saying? Like like he could have done anything. He, he could have showed up with wrath. He could have obliterated our first parents and then obliterated the rest of creation with them. Been like, all right, this one's ruined, right? Just going to destroy it. He, he could have shown up and, and, and erased and started over, right? He, he, could have, he could have gone back in time. Like, God is timeless. He's outside of time. He could have done anything. He could have uncreated what he created, but he didn't do any of those things. What did he do? He planned to redeem what had been lost. And in order to redeem what had been lost, there was a period of time in which what he created had to be subjected to the futility of the waiting. That creation had to be stuck in this frustrating place of not being able to do what it was created to do while he worked out his redemptive plan to redeem and restore a recreated humanity. And creation waits. But Paul says creation waits in hope, right? He says, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In hope that creation itself will be set free. What I love about this, like this is like a really depressing topic. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> kind of appropriate for this season of Lent in some ways, because Lent is the season of darkness before the light. And I didn't plan it this way, but man, it's worked out pretty good. What I love about this 
is that it shifts our focus from the darkness to the light. It shifts our focus from the futility to the hope that it's only temporary. In hope that the creation itself will be set free. Not might be. Not could be. It will be. Creation will be set free from its prison of futility, from its bondage to corruption. And it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is, is not all there is. And what will be, is incomparably better. The creation will be set free from its bondage to futility. It will be what it was created to be. But it can only be set free when we are released into our freedom. Creation can only be set free when we are set free into the glory that Christ has won for us. So yeah, we walk through the ruin. We look at the brokenness every day. We groan under the the weight. But we do it with our eyes set on the glory. Because it's the glory that gives us the vision to have the courage to see the brokenness. It's the glory that gives us the strength to stand when the overwhelming weight of the brokenness wants to crush us down. It's the hope of glory that gives us joy in the face of pain. Yeah, we walk through the ruin, but we do it with our eyes set on the glory. Verse 18 said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to be revealed through to us. The suffering of this current time can't compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. And as we keep our eyes focused on the glory, it enables us to truly engage the suffering. That allows us to groan. All right? Down in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's a very graphic image, right? This image of of a woman giving birth to a child. This age, Paul says, is, is groaning like a woman in labor. Just in pain as what was is passing away and, and, and what is coming is, is being born and is almost here. And the transition can be overwhelmingly painful. There is suffering now. But there is joy that is beyond comprehension just ahead. What is coming out of this age of darkness? What is being born into this world? Will be so bright, so full of joy, so vibrant in its freedom that like a woman who's given birth to a child, 
It'll seem like a dream. And it'll be swallowed by the joy. This is apocalyptic language. This whole idea of of the age being born. Um, Jesus used language like this, right? In Mark 13, when he was talking about the end end of the age, um, he, he was warning his disciples. He's like, yeah, yeah, when the end of the age is coming, man, there's going to be false Christs, and there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and there's going to be famine, and, uh, and this is going to be the beginning of the birth pangs, right? And um, I've got some friends that are really, really obsessed with, with end time stuff and eschatology, and so they're always trying to, you know, keep their, their finger up to the wind and try to figure out the temperature of, of current events. Like, well, this is it, man. I think this is finally here. I think we're actually in the end times. And, and I think they miss the entire point. Yeah, we've been living in famine and war and false Christs since Christ ascended into heaven. Now, maybe we don't notice it as much because it's been happening in parts of the world where it doesn't affect us as much. But that's been happening the entire time. There have been false Christs and famines and wars since Jesus left. Y'all, we are in the last times. We've been in the last times since Jesus left. This is the age of the last times. Hmm. Ever since Jesus rose from the dead. You know why? Because this age is dying. And the age of the kingdom is being born. And I love that it's the last times. You know why? Because it means this might be the last time we see this kind of suffering. It might be the last time we see this kind of betrayal. It might be the last time we see this kind of abuse of of power. It might be... This is the age of the last times. These are the last times we will see the death throes of this evil age. Because when the age come, is born into this world, the age of death will die. Look at the verb tense of this verse. I want you to see this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not it began to. It has been groaning. It's never stopped. You know, we had, a, we had an insanely long labor with our first child. And by we, I of course mean Lauren. What, 36 hours? I mean, it was insane. Um, creation? has been in the pain of childbirth for thousands of years. And still, the sufferings of this current age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. That's how good it's going to be. Not even that kind of suffering is worthy to be compared to the glory that's coming. Y'all, as we talked about last week, um, groaning is a form of lament. Right? To groan is an intentional choice to bring our, our pain, our suffering, our confusion, our discontent to God. 
instead of grumbling against God, right? Grumbling is what we do when, when we create a case against God or, or we kind of just get full of self-pity and get super frustrated that God and the universe aren't, aren't giving us our low maintenance, hassle-free lives, the ones that we think we deserve. You know what I'm saying? Like we just get, we just feel really entitled and frustrated and angry. Groaning is, is different, man. Groaning is when we come in humility. Groaning is when we come, maybe even in anger. Come in sorrow. We come in the fullness of the raw emotions. And we come to God, not against God. Instead of checking out, self-medicating with entertainment or distraction or sin, we stay present. One of the hardest things to do when you're in pain. To stay present. Not looking away. Not pretending it's not there. Not distracting yourself. And as we do that, we witness the brokenness. We see it. And we turn our pain into a groan of lament. We lift it to God. As the only one who can meet us in that place. And something that I've been thinking about this week, um, as we close... I want you to see lament as a form of spiritual warfare. Because it is. It is a powerful form of spiritual warfare. Romans 16.20. Now we're going to get there someday. Okay? Romans 16.20, the very end of the letter. Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's for the whole letter. That's why I love that. It's like the last thing Paul's got for us at the end. It's like, yep, yep. The God of Shalom is going to crush the one who hates Shalom under your feet. Why is he going to crush him under our feet? Because we're the new humanity. We're the firstborn of creation along with the firstborn. We are the ones created in the image of Christ. Not only created in the gods, but recreated in the image of Christ. And we will stand in the glory of Christ. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And God will soon crush Satan under your feet. The reason I love that is Genesis 3.15 foreshadows that. Genesis 3, the, the chapter of the Great Rebellion, there is what theologians call the Proangelion, the very first preaching of the gospel. Our first parents rebelled against God, and before the dust had even settled, before the chaos had even quieted down, God, in the middle of all of that, spoke to the serpent who was a manifestation of Satan. And, and speaking to the serpent, what he said was, you know what? There's going to come a son of the woman. And that son is going to crush your head, even though you're going to bruise his heel. He will undone what you think you've done. And he'll make it better. And of course, Jesus was that son of the woman. Jesus was the son of Eve, the perfect one who succeeded where every other human had failed. And on the cross, his heel was bruised while he crushed the head of our enemy and destroyed his power. Jesus did that on the cross. He accomplished that. He fulfilled that. 
And listen to me, every time we lament the brokenness of this world, we're prophetically doing it too. We are now stepping into the victory that will be ours and celebrating it in faith and in hope. Tasting the future glory in the present. Tasting the joy of that glory in the midst of the suffering. Listen, we are called as children of God to stand as witnesses of the atrocities of the kingdom of darkness and to do it unbowed and unbroken. And the only way we can do that is if we keep our eyes fixed, not on the ruin, but on the glory to come. If we keep our eyes fixed on the kingdom that is being revealed and the glory that will be ours. And we groan. We groan. But when we groan, the enemy runs. You know why? Because when we groan, that's an exercise of faith. We are standing in the dignity of the dominion of children of God, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. When we groan, we're lamenting the pain in the light of the glory. And our enemy can't stand that. It terrifies him. It crushes him. It's in those moments that I believe he knows truly the power of fear because he fears himself. Because he can't stand in the face of that kind of hope. This week, as I was reading about the atrocities of the Russian army in Ukraine, literally in real time, This week, as I was reading about the famine in Somalia, brought about by the worst drought in a hundred years, I ache. I feel helpless in the face, I mean, so small in the face of such great tragedy, so small in the face of such great power and great suffering. This week, someone told me, about their friend who mm, committed suicide. This week I ran into another guy who just spontaneously shared with me the grief, the very raw grief of infertility and the suffering they had gone through as they tried to address it and the fact that they had just miscarried the night before. And with each one of these, I felt not only their pain, but my own. Because in each one of these situations, their pain lit up a network of memories and experiences and lit up my own pain with them. And I realized as I was wrestling with this and sitting with this, that I had three options. 
One, I could deny it, which is honestly how I spent most of my life. That, that just bury it. <laughs> bury it. Don't look at it. Don't feel it. Don't touch it. Bury it. The problem is it's like trying to bury nuclear waste. It just leaks. There is nothing you can bury that in. <laughs> but it's not going to leak and affect everything else. The second is to get really, really angry about it. To get bitter. To foster a heart of self-pity. An accusation and a resentment against God. The third. And this is the path that's opened to, up to us because of the death and resurrection of Christ, the glory that is set before us, our adoption into the family of God, our redemption from our sin, our indwelling from the Holy Spirit is to groan in the pain to the God who meets us in it. To lament. To bring your tears and your anger, your feelings of helplessness and smallness into the presence of God as an act of faith. And to sit in it. Not to sit in the hopelessness. Not to sit in the brokenness. Not to be swallowed by the pain but to bring the pain into the light of His glory, into the presence of His love, to find the communion of the Spirit so that God can minister to us in pain because He's a God who knows pain. And in that moment, man, you don't just hurt. You're lifted out of the hurt. It isn't, the hurt doesn't go away. But God meets you in the pain and He awakens a joy. And that joy becomes a longing that's a new pain in and of itself. A longing for deliverance. A longing for the revealing of the sons of God. A longing for the glory that is to come. It awakens within you a longing for the birth of the kingdom of God. And as I wrestled with this, I found myself weeping. And my prayer, it didn't kind of surprise me. I just found myself praying. Let it be true. Let it be true. Let it be true. I believe, help my unbelief. Because in that moment I realized, man, I believe it, but I, I don't know that I I don't know that I fully am there. I struggle with it. The darkness is so big. At times so overwhelming. God will deepen your faith in those moments like any other moment. God will awaken your joy, a deeper joy than you understand in those moments in ways He never will in your laughter or your victory or your celebrations. He will cause you to despise the small victories of this world and start to crave the surpassing glory of the kingdom to come. He awakens within you the hunger for your nobility, the hunger for your glory, the hunger for the revealing of the sons of God. Because when the sons of God are revealed, you will be revealed as you were intended to be. And 
as an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ, recreated in the image of Christ. Listen, y'all, you can't see it, but when you're on your face, broken, weak, and groaning, you are shining with the glory of God. And the honor of Christ clothes you, and your enemy is terrified. Let's grow strong by embracing our weakness. All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. I'm going to put up some reflection questions and just allow you to pray and process with God and let God speak to you where you are. And then we're going to share communion and we'll sing. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that uh, you invite us into this noble activity of groaning. Lord, in some ways we hate it because we don't want to have to deal with the pain. We want to be able to skip the whole death thing before we get to resurrection. We want to skip the whole valley of the shadow of death. We want to skip the darkness and the pain. But Lord, you have a purpose for us in it. You not only promise to deliver us from it, you not only promise to undo all that has been done. But while we wait, you promise to meet us in the waiting. To start setting us free right now. To awaken within us a deeper and more profound yearning and hunger for your glory. For our glory in Christ. Spirit, I pray for my friends. Some of them are terrified of the darkness that seeks to swallow them, of sitting in the pain because it's too big. But Lord, as big as the pain is, you are a bigger Savior. And as dark as this world is, it is nothing compared to the light of the kingdom of love. Carry us where we can't go. And meet us in the pain that we can't endure. And strengthen us with a strength that surpasses our understanding. You guys take a few minutes. Let's pray. We'll share communion in a moment.